Okay, uh, well this week we're going to look at uh, Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Just uh, five very short verses here. But before we get to Matthew 3, 13 through 17, we're going to talk about last week, the review. And those of you who weren't here last week, obviously you're not going to know what we're reviewing here, but you can just kind of listen in. And uh, I'm going to ask you some questions to see how well you listened last week and how well you're retaining what you heard last week. So it's very important to retain these things, not just let it go in one ear and out the other. Okay? All right. What was John the Baptist's message? Maybe you can even quote it if you want to. Daniel? That's the second part, or what's the first part of it? Repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was his message. And what do you know, we look in the Matthew, uh, at the end of Matthew 4 later on, we'll see that that was Jesus' message too. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the same thing he told his disciples to, to preach as well. Are the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God the same thing? Yes, they sure are. I gave you many different texts from different parts of the Gospels that show using the same story, using the kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven interchangeably, even within the same Gospel and the same story, using those two terms interchangeably. So kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven are the same thing. What are the four parts to the kingdom? Jenna? Okay, a ruler and a ruling body. Okay, that's the first part. What's the other three parts? Subjects, domain, and law. So we have the king or the ruling body if we're talking about an earthly system. If we're talking about the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God, we're talking about one king, the king of kings. And then he has the subjects, lawful, obedient subjects. And then we have the domain, which with Jesus is the whole universe. It's not just a certain geographical domain on, on earth. It's a whole universe. And then we have laws that he gives us. They expect us to obey. Is everyone under, listen very carefully, is, any, is everyone under this kingdom? Yes. Yes. Everyone, we see that in Matthew 5, 19, where, where Jesus says, if you teach someone to disobey God's commandments, you're considered least in the kingdom. But they're not actually a part of the kingdom, as a lawful subject of the kingdom, but they are under God's kingdom because he rules everyone, even the ones who are disobedient, unlawful subjects. That would be part of God's kingdom. That's right. But is everyone a loyal subject in the kingdom? No. No. Only the Christians are. And how did someone become a part of this kingdom? How did someone become a part of this kingdom? Repent of your sins. Repent of your sins, be born again, and become a law-abiding citizen. That's right. You have to, as, as Jesus said it, the kingdom will be taken from you, the Jews, and given to a people who will bear the fruit of it. So you must bear the fruit of it. Be part of the kingdom. How is our calling as Christians similar to John the Baptist's calling? How is it similar? What was John the Baptist? He was a special one and only time ever had this calling. Well, John the Baptist he was to make the way of the Lord's first coming. Right. And uh, our mission is to make the way for the Lord's second coming. That's right. So he preached about the Lamb of God coming, and we should be preaching about the Lion of Judah right. who's coming. Right. So as he, as he was the forerunner and the herald or the public crier of the first coming of the king, where he suffered as a servant, we're to be the herald or the forerunner or the public crier of the second coming of the king. And warn people that he is coming back, not as a suffering servant, as a conquering king this time. And if you don't have mercy by then, there's, there's some, there's, you're going to be in trouble. Give me some characteristics of John the Baptist's life and preaching. Just if you know one, go ahead, Caitlin. He was beheaded, okay. So his preaching cost him his life. Now, now Caitlin, why was, why was he put in jail in the first place? Do you remember this? certain person he was preaching about. The, the king's wife, wife, daughter. Uh, well, yeah, that, she's the one who asked for his head in the plate, right? But he was put in jail because he... Jenna? Ah, so he called him an adulterer. Ah, see, so he preached about sin. 
And it cost him his head. Are you willing for preaching about sin to cost you your head? Ah, good question. So he was willing to put his life on the line. What are some other characters of John the Baptist preaching or his life? We talked about last week. No compromise? Okay, good. He was humble, right? He was willing to eat anything, sleep anywhere for the Lord's sake and for the sake of the gospel. Amen. He had priorities straight about the things of this world that moth and rust will destroy. He cared more for God's will than for those things. Lived in the wilderness. Yes. Right. Amen. Amen. Was uh, was John the Baptist whispering in the wilderness? Oh, he was yelling or screaming, as people say in the open air when they don't like when we speak loudly. Yeah, he was he was forcing it on them. Right. Um, was John the Baptist uh, harsh, or did he give hard words at times? He called them children of snakes, a brood of vipers, probably referencing back to the poisonous snake that we all know about, Satan. Called them the children of the devil. And they said, oh, we're children of Abraham. That's an insult to them. So sometimes if we're going to preach rightly, we're going to give hard words to people. They're not going to like it. They're not going to feel loved by us all the time. Even if we are actually being loving in our heart. They're not going to feel the love. But unfortunately, this world thinks love is a feeling. That's all that it is. Love is not only a feeling, although it can be. So you're not always going to feel loved. The Pharisees didn't feel loved when Jesus came and told them they were whitewashed tombs. In fact, one time he told them that they were blind. The disciples said to him, don't you know that they were offended by what you said? He said, leave them alone. They're blind guys that are blind. Yeah. They're blind leaders of the blind. So he wasn't concerned necessarily about offending the people. But of course, we shouldn't go trying to offend people unnecessarily as well. He knew his place and his calling in life. He knew, I must decrease, he must increase. When Jesus came along, he knew his ministry would decrease, and Jesus' ministry would increase. So he had his priorities straight. And he preached about hell and judgment, the things that are hard to preach about that most people don't want to even touch. But just because something's hard to preach about doesn't mean we shouldn't preach about it, or talk about it, or witness about it to other people. In fact, we should. And we need to get over ourselves and over our own fears and talk to people about these things. Okay, let's read Matthew chapter 3, uh, verses 13 through 17, and then we'll kind of go through it again. Matthew three, thirteen through 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you are coming to me. But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Once again we see John's humility coming forth in, in verse 14, where he says, I need to be baptized by you, and you are coming to me. He knew that he was nothing, and Jesus was everything. He knew that he needed to be baptized by Jesus, and not Jesus by him. And what kind of baptism did John have? A baptism of repentance, exactly. So who needs John's baptism? Those who need to repent. Did Jesus need to repent? Did John the Baptist need to repent? So who needed to baptize who, according to John the Baptist's view? Jesus needed to baptize John the Baptist. So you can see his, his conundrum, I guess you can say here, since Jesus had never sinned. So, but Jesus wanted to be baptized anyway. Why? To fulfill all Righteousness. But you know what? There's nothing in the Old Testament that says that you need to be baptized. Not one thing about that. So Jesus isn't referring back to the Old Testament when he says to fulfill all righteousness. 
He's simply saying that he, you know, he's, he's about to bring in the new covenant here. And what's part of the new covenant? Being baptized. That's part of the new covenant. And the new covenant demands that people be baptized. And people shouldn't be baptized whenever it's convenient for them or when they feel like it or when the weather's warm or when the pastor decides to covenant during the quarterly baptism meetings. A person should be baptized as soon as they are ready to repent of their sins and trust in Christ as their Savior. Their atonement or sacrifice for sin. It's a necessary step and God commands us to do it. So if you're ready to repent and trust in Christ, you need to be baptized. It's really that simple. And if Jesus is going to command us to do it, if God's going to command us to do it, it seems that He wanted to set the example by doing it Himself. And in that sense, He's fulfilling all righteousness by setting the example for us. I want you to notice the, the language here in verse 15. If you can read that real quick. It says, But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all, on, all righteousness. You know what the word permit has to do with? Permission. Why do you ask permission, children, to do something from your parents? Anyone know? Why do you ask for permission? Because your parents have not given you authority for you to do it without asking for permission to do it. Okay? Uh, so asking for permission assumes that the person you're asking for permission from has the ability not to give permission. My son comes to me and says, Dad, can I, can I have some cookies today? Now he's assuming that I can say yes or I can say no. I have the ability, I have the authority, and he's asking me because he's under my authority. And I say, no, Malachi, not right now. Maybe later. He says, oh, okay, Daddy. And, uh, but then later on, I give him a cookie anyway. Uh, but uh, the permit has to do with permission. Now, why is Jesus asking John the Baptist for permission? This seems to very clearly, in my opinion, back up the doctrine of free will. Why else would he ask, permit it to be so for now? And not only that, not only does John the Baptist have the, the free will to decide whether he's going to baptize Jesus or not, but listen to what it says right after Jesus said this. Then he allowed him. Sounds like free will to me. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus doesn't have the ability or the authority to make John the Baptist baptize him, or that God doesn't have the ability or authority to make John the Baptist baptize him, but the fact of the matter is, what we see here is God wanting John the Baptist to do it out of his own free choice. Jesus isn't forcing him to do it. God isn't forcing him to do it. He said, permit it to be so for now. He says, then he allowed it to happen. So he had free will involved here. And Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist out of John the Baptist's free choice to fulfill all righteousness. In verse 16, it says that Jesus came up from the water. If you come up from the water, what does that assume? You were in the water, right? That's right, you were submerged. And that means he was in the water. And this and other examples we see in Scripture shows that true water baptism is being immersed in the water and coming out of the water. Now, there's some Christians and denominations that would have you believe that being sprinkled is, uh, is biblical baptism or having water poured over you is biblical baptism. But that's not true. I'm going to have to disagree with those people. In fact, even the word itself, baptism, is transliterated. Remember that word? Transliterated from baptizo in the Greek. So it's this Greek word, baptizo. It's brought over into the English using the, the, linguish, the English uh, letter equivalents to bring it into the English language. And it means to immerse or submerge. It's putting it completely in the water. Okay? So to say that Sprinkling water over someone as baptism, or pouring water over someone as baptism, is to go is to redefine what the word means, and to go against all the scriptural example we have. And then it goes on to say the Spirit of God descended on Jesus like a dove, and alighted him. Does this mean that the, that a physical dove? You know, we see the movies about Jesus. Does this mean a physical dove came and sat on Jesus' shoulder, shoulder, or that the Holy Spirit was in the form of a dove? No, no. Like a dove. What is, children, if you're taking English class, like has to do with what kind of 
English thing. We're talking about a simile here, right? A metaphor, simile. This is like this. So like a dove. Like a dove comes and perches on something. The Holy Spirit came and descended upon Jesus. Came and descended upon Him. So it's not saying that there's literally a dove or like we see in the, the movie sometimes that an actual dove came and sat on the sho- shoulder. But what we see here is John the Baptist was able to see with his own eyes, physical eyes. God allowed him to see by revelation this Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus. And that's what the word alighted means. The word alight doesn't mean like he lit up and it was real shiny. Alighted means descended or came upon. That's what the Greek word means, from above. And after the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus, we hear from heaven a voice from the Father giving his approval what his son just did. So the Father's giving approval to Jesus being baptized as well. And not only was he pleased with what his son just did, getting baptized, but he's also pleased with his son as a whole. For his son had completely obeyed him up to this point and would completely obey him to the end of his days on earth. The last thing I'll mention about Jesus' baptism here is that for the first time the people get to see a picture or a foreshadowing of what would happen to Jesus in about three years. The death, burial, and resurrection. Most people were ignorant of this. Didn't know it was going to happen. Even the disciples when it happened, they were like, what just happened? They didn't understand it. They went to the, they went to the tomb, didn't understand, where is he? Thought someone had taken his body. But they could see for the first time as a picture, a foreshadowing, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in baptism. Well, they've gone through this passage pretty quickly, these five verses. Uh, I guess we can just be done for the for today, huh? No, we're just, we're just starting. We're going to talk about the Trinity today. The biblical doctrine of the Trinity. Very important doctrine. I think it's a very, it's a good point to begin talking about this because what we see in the baptism of Jesus is all the Trinity involved. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And uh, simply put, the Trinity is three persons, one God. Not three persons and three gods. Not one person and one God. Not three manifestations or modes of God. But three persons one God. People get real confused about this doctrine, so we're going to spend some time on this today. And I'm going to use the whiteboard today to give you some illustrations, because it's always good to have some visual learning going on as well. Okay, so we have the Father is not The Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. So we got a triangle here. The good thing about a triangle is uh, it's three sides, but it's one shape. Okay? Three sides, but one shape. And if you take one side away, you don't have a triangle anymore. In fact, there's no shape in the world that I know of that you can have two sides and have a shape. You have a line. Uh, even a circle doesn't have sides. Literally speaking, just going around a circle. It doesn't have a side. Three sides, but one triangle. The Father's not the Son, the Son not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. But, the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. See how that works? So what we have around the outskirts here is the personhood of the Trinity. The Father is a person, the Son is a person, the Holy Spirit is a person. But they're not each other. But they all are God. See how that works? Okay, so this is the kind of thing I want you to picture in your head as we go through this today. Listen to the Apostles' Creed, which is, uh, tradition said, is pretty old. It says, I believe in God the Father, Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord, 
who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into Hades. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven. It says at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost. I believe in the Holy Universal Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. There's some people who are going around saying that the Trinity is not a historical doctrine. Let's go back to the beginning. But the Apostles' Creed is supposed to be a very old creed. The first creed there was, and it goes back to the beginning. And they believe the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And later on at the very end of the teaching, I'm going to give you some quotes from early church fathers around the first and second and third century of the church who very clearly articulate the Trinity way before the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. Okay, so we're going to see for ourselves a historical Malachi. Come here, son. Now, me and my son, turn around, Malachi. It's okay, you're not in trouble, bud. Now, me and, my, me and Malachi, what do you see here? You see, I'm a father, and he's my son. Now, what we're going to get through later is that me and Malachi, we're both human beings. Okay? In nature, we're both equally human. Now, I'm a lot taller than Malachi. Right, Malachi? I'm a lot bigger than Malachi. He's a small version of me. There may be things that we will have that will be different. He, you know, he has blue eyes. I have blue eyes. His hair is probably a little lighter than mine is, as far as the color. He may end up being taller than me later on, or stronger than me later on. He may end up being a better preacher than me. I hope he will be later on. And, uh, but there will be differences between us that make us different. And our roles are different as well in our relationship. My role is the father. His role is the son. His role is to submit to me. My role, my role, my role is to, to lead him and to guide him and to rule over him properly. But it doesn't make him, by being my son and being smaller than me and being younger than me or maybe less intelligent than me because he hasn't lived long enough, hasn't learned a lot of things, it doesn't make him any less human than I am. Okay, so we're dealing here with nature. He's a human, I'm a human. Even if Malachi were to be born with one arm or one leg or three toes, it wouldn't make him any less human than I am human. And what I, I want you to keep this in mind, because we get into this later on, we're going to talk about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in the relation to each other. And we're going to talk about their nature and how they're equal in nature, but then in their personal attributes, they are different. And in the order in the, in the Trinity, and in the, in the, the order of the Godhead, how they're different. Thanks, Malachi. Put it down, son. So I want to get that in your head before we get going to the rest of this here. Now, here's some analogies the early church used in regard to the Trinity. Okay, you have the uh, you have the sun in the sky. Okay, the sun in the sky. There's the orb called the sun, the circular orb, and then you have the flames that come up from the sun. Okay, the flames that come up from the sun. So you got the orb, then you got the flames. And then you've got the rays of sunlight that come from the sun. The rays of sunlight. Now these are three different and separate parts, but the origin of the flames, the origin of the rays, is the orb. As soon as the orb began to exist, the flames and the rays began to exist. As long as the orb has existed, the flames and the rays have existed. So we have three parts. We have one sun, S-U-N. One sun. Then the Trinity, we have one God, three persons. The Father is the source. He's the orb, the source of all the Trinity. And the Bible says the Son is the begotten of the Father. Not begotten in the sense that He was born or began to exist at some point in time. Or that He didn't exist at some point in time. But his source is found in the Father. Just like the source of the flames are found in the orb. And the source of the rays are found in the orb. So the Holy Spirit gets its source from the Father and from the Son. So you see how this works. That's one of the the analogies they use. Then we also have, uh, let's take a spring of water bubbling up from the ground. A spring of water. We've got a spring of water here. And that spring trickles down to a stream. And then later on, it goes into a bigger part called the river. So we have a spring, and then a stream or a creek, and then we have a river. Now the source of the river, 
the source of the stream is a spring. So as long as the spring has existed, the stream and the river has existed, and they get they find their source in the spring. Now they're all connected. You can't separate them. The water's connected there. But there's still three different parts. You go to a spring, you call it a certain thing. You go to a creek, this is a McGlone Creek here. You go down to the river, you see Green River. You don't call them the same thing. So you have three separate parts here, but they're all interconnected. They're all one. And the source is the spring. This is what you find in the Trinity. You find the source of the Trinity being the Father, and the Son having his source in the Father, and so the Holy Spirit has its source in the Son and the Father. But when the Bible says begotten of Jesus in like John 3.16 and so forth, and then John 1, it's not saying that uh, he began at some point in time. Like I had, me and my wife had my son. He began at some point in time. But Jesus did not begin at some point in time. As long as the Father has existed, eternity passed, so has the Son, and so has the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says that when two people become married, they become one flesh. Now, if I were to ask my wife to come I'm not going to actually do that. She's you know, getting along in her pregnancy here. Let her relax. Uh, but we're two people. But we're also one flesh. Now, I go to someone, they, they may say, uh, one, two. And I'll say, no, one flesh. And they may say, oh, one flesh. I say, no. One, two. Two people. So we have two people, we have one flesh. And really, when we, when we say this, you know, this, this according to uh, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5, 31-32, marriage is really a picture of Christ in the church. We're part of the body of Christ. He's the head. That's one body. But several people involved in this body. And we are the bride of Christ. And there's only one day we'll be united to Him. So me and my wife, we're, we're two people, but we're one flesh. Someone might even say two flesh. No, one flesh. Huh? Well, you're talking about the Holy the Trinity? Right, but the Bible doesn't say that your children are part of your flesh. They don't, it doesn't say that. So I, I wouldn't use that analogy. So you have two people, one flesh. If the Bible said that, I would include that. But you know, one person did come from our union. No doubt about that. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. But like I said, it doesn't mean he had a beginning at some place in time. Okay, uh, John 1.4. I'll just give you some scripture references. I'm not going to go to all of them here. That talk about Jesus being the only begotten Son of God. You have John 1.14. Uh, John one eighteen, John three sixteen, John eight forty two, and Hebrews one five. Jesus is God from God; he is deity from deity. That's his nature. He is God. He is deity by nature. I'm human by nature. Caffeine, a little dog, is dog by nature. The chickens outside, like Oreo, are chickens by nature. That's their nature. And if I were to take a dog like Caffeine, a dog like Cayenne, remember that dog, they're different. But they're no, neither one is more, more doggy than the other doggy. They're just equally doggy. But they have different personalities, different attributes. Cayenne was very skittish, very... Uh, energetic, and uh, Kathy was very motherly, and uh, she seemed to wear the pants in the family in that situation, even though Kyan wished he, he would have. But Jesus wasn't, like I said, Jesus wasn't born from the Father in the sense that you and I were born from our mother or father. We began at some point in time. He did not. He is eternal. And he finds his source in the Father. Now, each part of the Trinity, I want to prove to you this personhood thing here, because each part of the Trinity in Scripture has been given personal pronouns. And you give personal pronouns to someone who is a person. Okay, so let's look at some scriptures regarding that. Let's go to John 1. John 1, 32 through 34. 
And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and He, the Spirit, remained upon Him, Jesus. I did not know Him, but He who sent, sent me, He, God, the Father, who sent me to baptize with water, said to me, Upon whom, Jesus, you see the Spirit descending and remaining on Him, this is He who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. You see, He used for each part of the Trinity in this two, these three verses here. Okay? Uh, then we have John 14. In verse 15. We all know John 14, 15. We quote it in the open air all the time. To the hypocrites who don't want to obey God. If you love me, keep my commandments. This is Jesus speaking here. And I, Jesus, this is a personal pronoun, will pray the Father, and He, the Father, personal pronoun, will give you another helper, that He, the Holy Spirit, another personal pronoun, may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him, the Holy Spirit, nor knows Him, the Holy Spirit, but you know Him, the Holy Spirit, for He dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. So Holy Spirit is not some impersonal force, some impersonal mystical force. He's a He. And He will guide you, and He will come and live inside of you, Jesus says here. So we have personal pronouns. Uh, John fourteen twenty six. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. That's verse 25. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. So you have personal pronouns being used there as well. Uh, and I'm going to just give you some scripture references for some of these here. Uh, if you want to write them down, it's up to you. John fifteen twenty six. This is dealing with uh, the Trinity being persons now. John 16, verses 13 through 15. First uh, Peter Chapter 1 and verse 2. And then uh, I'm going to read this last one here. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 7. For there are three that bear witness in heaven. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. That's about as clear as it can get when it comes to three being one in personhood. And uh, there's been some people who've said that these, this scripture, verse 7, uh, doesn't belong in our Bible. And uh, I'm going to show you later on that our Lord Church Father quotes the last part of this verse in the 200s. So I think it does belong in the Bible. And what in the early Church Father's writings predates these manuscripts that don't include 1 John 5, 7. I think it does belong in the Bible. Okay. All three are also called God in Scripture. And all do things that only God can do, proving that they are all God. Okay, so we have the personal pronouns here. The Holy Spirit is not the Father, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Holy Spirit. They're three persons. Now we're talking about the one God part. Uh, let's, go, let's talk about the Father first. I think no, nobody really denies that He's a person, but we'll just give a couple verses to make sure. John six twenty seven. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father excuse me, has set his seal on him. So God the Father. Okay? You could also look at Romans one seven if you wanted to to show that the Father is also called God in Scripture. Now, but most of the, the problem when it comes to dealing with the Trinity is people believe that the Son's not God, that the Holy Spirit's not God. Well, there's a plethora of scriptures that, that show that's not true. And I'm only going to read a couple of each one, but I'll give you scripture references for the other one. Uh, let's first go to Hebrews chapter 1. This will be for Jesus here. It's a, clear as a bell. And it's part of it's going to be quoting from the Old Testament here. Hebrews chapter 1. And, uh, and verse 6. But when he again, this time he again is the father here. He, when father again brings the firstborn to the world, he says, let the angels of God worship him. Worship Jesus. Who's the only one that gets worshipped? God. And God the father is saying, let all the angels worship him, Jesus. 
He goes on to say, and to the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and administers a flame of fire. But to the son, he says this. The father says this to the son. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. So, God, your God, deity, your deity, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. So we have them both being called God here. Jesus is being called God. And uh, let's go to John 1.1. I think we all know this one. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Father. And the Word was God, the Son. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. So we have Jesus being called God once again. Okay, let's, let's go to... Let me give you some scripture references. You know what? If you want the scripture references for the rest of these sons, one, I can give them to you later. How about that? There's a lot of them here. I'm not going to rattle them all off right now. Uh, but let's go to the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 5, and verse 1. Acts 5, and verse 1. By a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira, his wife, stole a possession. He kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has, your, has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? So Peter's accusing him of lying to the Holy Spirit. Now listen to what it says. While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? Why have you, you have not lied to men, but to God? You lied to the Holy Spirit, you lied to God. The Holy Spirit is God. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'll give you one more here for the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? So we're going to compare this verse right here, the Spirit of God dwells in you, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19, which says... Or do you not know that you are, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? So the Spirit of God is dwelling in you, and the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you. The Holy Spirit is being called God once again. Okay, so we have these all three being called God. So the Holy Spirit is God, the Son is God, and the Father is God. But they're three separate persons. Okay. So, the whole, all deity, and uh, Jesus wasn't just human, the Holy Spirit isn't just some impersonal, mystical force that comes from God. But just because there are three persons, as been, sh- as been shown by the personal pronoun scriptures, doesn't mean that they aren't one God. According to Deuteronomy 6.4, God is one. God is one. According to Deuteronomy 6.4. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 4. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other God but one. We have one God. Uh, same in Galatians 3.20 and 1 Timothy 2.5. These things make it clear there's one God. Galatians 3.20 and 1 Timothy 2.5. And I just read off uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 4. So God is one, but in what sense is He one? Is He one in personhood? No. No, He's not one in personhood. Let's, go, let's turn to John 17 real quick. I know I'm kind of getting you guys to go all over, but there's lots of scriptures here, though. I want to make this pretty thorough here. Uh, you could always review 
uh, Levitio again later on to, uh, to go through it again, or I can give you my notes if you want to. Uh, John 17 and verse 11. Now I am no longer in the world. This is Jesus praying to the Father here, praying for his disciples. Now I am no longer in the world, but these, the disciples, are in the world. And I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. That they may be one as we are. John 17, 4. And then go to verse 20. Or John 17, 11. I'm sorry. 17, 11. Go down to verse 20 now. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe me through their word. That they may all be one as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, and the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. So, the Father and the Son cannot be one in personhood. Because Jesus is not praying to the Father here and asking Him to make the disciples one in personhood. He's praying to the Father, asking Him to make them one in mind, will, and purpose. Mind, will, and purpose. So in what sense did Jesus want the disciples to be one? In mind, will, and purpose. In what sense were Jesus and the Father one? In mind, will, and purpose. Jesus is submitting to the Father. The Holy Spirit is submitting to Jesus and the Father. They're all one in will, mind, and purpose. Well, they are three different persons. So, when Jesus prays that they'd be one as, just as we are one, He's not praying that we become joined at the flesh and become Siamese twins. He knows we have our own wills. But He wants us to be united and unified as one body of Christ. Under the head, Jesus, who's under the head, the Father. But there's also a plurality within God. In Genesis 1.26, we see, let us, let us make Him in our image. Let us. Who's, who's God talking to there? The Son and the Holy Spirit. In Genesis 1.26, it says, Then God said, let us make man in our image, and according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over the over every creeping thing that creeps in the earth. So let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So even in the Hebrew Scriptures, it, we have a plurality in the Godhead. There's plurality there. There's a our and an us there. Uh, we see the same thing in Genesis 3.22. This is when they're getting kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And he says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. Like one of us. Yes. I don't remember the exact words, but in Hebrew, there's actually two different words for the, the word one. Yeah. And one means definite article. Right. And there's another one that means uh, one unit. Right. One grouping. Right. And That's what's you, used. Everywhere you see the word one being referred to as God, right. they always use the word that refers to one unit or one grouping. Right. They don't use the one definite article. Yes. What does definite article mean, children? What is definite article in God? Uh, specifically, one, one object. Right. That's definite article. The God, the Father. That's definite article. The is definite article. The the way, the truth, the life. So that's definite article. So if there's no definite article there, then you have a plurality. Right. That's what we have in the scripture. That's what the Hebrew word is used. I guess Elohim is a Hebrew word used. And then in uh, Genesis chapter 11, in verse 20, verse 27. No, that's not the right scripture. Genesis 11, is it 7 maybe? Yes, it's Genesis 11, 7. This is Tower of Babel. I don't know how I got a 2 in there. <laughs> Happens when you type something up sometimes. Uh, it says, Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. Let us go down, confuse their language. So there's three persons, they're all God, and they're all equally God. Genesis 11.7. And you can also, if you want to put down Isaiah 6.8, another one you can check out for yourself. So all three persons are God. Jesus is God, the Father is God, the Holy Spirit is God. And they are equal, all equally God. Just like me and my, my son. We talked about it before. Me and they are equally human. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all equally God. And even if you, my son were to lose a limb, 
or lose an eye or lose some teeth doesn't make him any less human than I am. So we're equal in that sense. And you know, a lot of times, this is where you can confuse him when it comes to the man and woman roles in, in marriage. People in the open air will say, well, you think women are less than you. No, no, women are just as important and valuable to God. But there's roles within the marriage. So there's, but there's a, just because they're, they're equal, equally God, does not mean there's not a hierarchy or a order or a submissiveness within the Trinity. And what we see is Jesus submitting to the Father, and that the Father is above Jesus. The Holy Spirit submits to Jesus and the Father, and they are both above Him. So let's look at some scriptures that talk about that. Let's look at uh, Philippians chapter 2. This is a good one here. Philippians chapter 2. There's lots of scriptures about it. We're not going to go through all of them. I won't weary you with flipping through your Bible too much. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Let this mindset mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. But when it says that Jesus Christ didn't consider that he could actually be equal with God, the Father, it's not saying he's not equal in nature, because they're both equally God. But they are not equal in personal attributes or characteristics or in the order within the Trinity. Or the submissiveness within the Trinity. So just kind of put a picture in your head. We have the Trinity here. We have the Father, and we have the Son, and we have the Holy Spirit. Sometimes people seem to think this is the Father, and this is the Son, and this is the Holy Spirit. That's the kind of the way it works. But some people get to thinking that it's like this. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's not the way it works. That may be accurate when you're talking about their nature and their deity. When you're talking about the hierarchy and the submissiveness within the Trinity, this is accurate. This is the way you see it in the Bible. Okay? So let's, you see Jesus saying he doesn't consider he could be equal with God. Not equal in nature, equal in personhood or the, the kind of authority he has within the Trinity. Okay? Uh, let's go to... John chapter 12 and verse 49. It says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that His command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. So who has the authority in the situation? The Father does. But the Son is submitting to His authority. And speaking His authority. And doing whatever the Father tells Him to do in complete obedience to the Father. That's what you see. Let's go to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And verse 3. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So the head of, of, of woman is man, the head of man is Christ, the head of Christ is God. So you see the authority structure here that God has laid out. doesn't mean that, that women are less valuable to God or less of a person than men is. doesn't mean that Jesus is less of a God. Than God is. Some people get, to, get into thinking, they get a little warped or thinking, or think that God, Jesus is like a demigod. That he's like a, a lesser God. No, in nature, he's equal to the Father. But in authority, he submits to the Father's authority in his life. One more for this submissiveness of the, of the Son to the Father. 1 Corinthians 15. This is a very important one here. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse, uh, we'll start in verse 24. Then comes the end. When he delivers a kingdom to God the Father, he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father when he puts an end to all rule and authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. 
So we have the Father putting all things under the Son. The Son delivering the kingdom to the Father. The Father putting all things under the Son. But what's the one thing that's not under the Son? The Father who put the things under the Son. So the Father's above the Son. And verse 20 says, Now when all things are made subject to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subject to Him who put all things under Him, that God, the Father, may be all in all. Very important scripture here. I think it's overlooked by most people when it comes to this issue. So there's an authority, there's a structure within a Godhead, and I have about 15 other verses I can talk about about this issue, but I'm not going to go into it. If you want the references, just ask me later, I'll give you my notes. And then we go, let's go back to John 14, and we'll see that the, we've, I think we've read through a couple of these verses already, but we're going to see, once again, the Holy Spirit submits to Jesus and the Father, and they are both above Him. John 14:16. And I'll pray the Father, and He will give you another helper, that He may abide with you forever. So he's, he's, Jesus is submitting to the Father, He's praying the Father to send the helper, and the helper is coming, because the Father tells Him to come. Uh, John 14:26. But the Helper of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, or my authority, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things I said to you. John fifteen twenty six. But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. Of me. So that's John fifteen twenty six. Uh, one more. John sixteen, thirteen through 14. However, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will tell you things to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take of what is Mine and declare it to you. Declare it to you. And it says in verse 15, All things that the Father has, has are Mine. So He's taking, Jesus is taken from the Father, the Holy Spirit is taken from Jesus, and they're giving Him the authority to do what He's doing. And he's submitting to their authority in the hierarchy of the Trinity. Yeah, even though, like I said, even, i got to stress this, though. So we get this, get this right here. Even though the Jesus submits to the Father and the Holy Spirit submits to both of them, does not mean the Jesus or the Holy Spirit are lesser gods than the Father is. Or lesser deity or divinity than, than the Father is. And we, we went through the example of Malachi and me, my wife and me. She used to submit to me. I'm the lover as Christ of the church and submit to her when it's needed to as well. But I am the head of her. So this Christ is the head of me. And God the Father is the head of Christ. It doesn't make her any less of a person. We have the example of the military. We have, we have privates in the military. We have sergeants. We have captains. We have generals. Is the private any less of a person than the sergeant is? Doesn't make any or the five star general is he any any more of a person than the private E one is? No, but there's an order within the, the the authority structure here. There's an order within the military. Angels is even order within the angels. No angels any less of an angel by nature than the other angels. We have cherubim, seraphim, we have archangels, we have probably just little private angels who do the dirty work, but. We have angels. We have we have dogs. Guardian, that's right. We have dogs. You have you have the Great Pyrenees, and you have a little Chihuahua. Is a little Chihuahua any less of a dog than the Great Pyrenees, or the Big Shepherd dog? No, they're not any less of a dog. You have dogs that have lots of hair. Dogs that have very little hair. Dogs that are big. Dogs that are small. Dogs that have blue eyes, very rare. Dogs that have brown eyes. And yet dogs have different roles. Some dogs just sit around and take up food and space and air and pee all over the floor. And then you have dogs that actually are useful. They'll be shepherd dogs. <laughs> Kathy's the first one, right? <laughs> oh, she's a crumb dog. There you go. She, she has her uses. She's the crumb dog. But is, is, uh, is Blue the crumb dog? Blue is the outside guard the chicken coop dog. 
and get off the chain and run into the woods, dog, and chase cats. That's the kind of dog she is. We have employees and employers. Is the CEO of a company any more of a human than the person who's just the, the file clerk? They may think they are. But they're not any more human or any better of a person in, in, as far as their nature is concerned. Uh, they're the same amount of humanity. Mentally handicapped people, even. And geniuses. Score off the charts an IQ test. The genius isn't any more of a human than the mentally handicapped person. They're, they're still human, equally human. Even someone who is blind or mute or deaf or compared to someone who has all their senses working properly. They're not any more of a human than a person who doesn't have all their senses working properly. There's been many people throughout history who've, who've done lots of great things without their senses working properly. So there, in the Trinity, you have different attributes, different things going on here. We see the Father creating the universe, but He did it through the Son. He did it through the Son. 1 Corinthians 8.6 says this, John 1.3 says this, Colossians 1, 16 through 17. Let's just look at one of those. Colossians 1, 16 through 17. It says, For by him, let's talk about Jesus here, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and indivisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. Things are created through Jesus by God the Father. Uh, The Father brings salvation to the world through the Son. We see this in 2 Corinthians 5.19. Starting in verse 18, it says, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. So it's reconciled to himself through Jesus Christ. has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them as committed to us the word of reconciliation. So the Father created the universe through the Son. He's reconciled people to himself through the Son. But the Son is doing the work. So there's an order here, and there's a submissiveness there. Uh, The Father reveals knowledge through the Holy Spirit. We see this, and we read John 16, 12, 15 a minute ago where he will bring to your remembrance all things whatsoever I told you. So through the Spirit, the Father brings your remembrance, brings knowledge, brings understanding. Um, the Scriptures itself were given by inspiration of God. And they're inspired by the Holy Spirit. So they're inspired by God the Father, but, uh, but they're, they're, they're inspired by the Holy Spirit as well. So you see both at work here. Uh, the Father also saves through the Holy Spirit. And, and what do you have to become? To become a Christian? Born again. And how are you born again? By the Holy Spirit. So you have the Father saving through the Son, but also saving through the Holy Spirit. But the Father is the source of this whole thing, of the whole plan of redemption. By saving through the Son and through the Holy Spirit as they're working. The Son's work is done. He's still interceding for the saints, but His work on earth is done. The Holy Spirit is still working on earth right now. And I just want to give you some uh, early church father quotes here, and then we'll kind of sum this up. All right? I have a lot, but I'm going to maybe mention a couple of them here. Okay. Uh, first one I have is Clement of Rome. This is from 96 A.D. He was the second or third bishop of Rome, uh, probably appointed to that position by the Apostle Paul, and he's written about, spoken of in Philippians. Clement. He says, Do we not have one God and one Christ? Is there not one Spirit of grace poured out upon us? So he he mentions the one God, the one Christ, and the one Spirit. Now, Athenagoras, who wrote around 175 AD, he wrote very specifically about these issues. I don't see how people who think that the Trinity began at the Council of Nicaea in AD 325 can get around what this guy is saying here. He says, 
Who then would not be astonished to hear men called atheists who speak of God the Father and of God the Son and of the Holy Spirit and who declare both their power and union and their distinction in order? That's as clear as a bell. That's the Trinity. He says again, he said, Christians, Christian know God and his, logo, his logos. They also know what type of oneness the Son has with the Father and what, what type of communion the Father has with the Son. Furthermore, they know what the Spirit is and what the unity is of these three, the Spirit, the Son, and the Father. They also know what their distinction is in unity. I don't think it can get any clearer than that. Let's read... Uh, when was that? that was in 175 A.D. Both of those from Athenagoras, 175 A.D., and Clement of Rome was from 96 A.D. Let me give you one from the next century. Uh, this is Clement... Well, that's still in the same century. Let's go to Tertullian here. Writing about 212 A.D. Very short quote. The Trinity of one divinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 212 A.D. About 213 A.D., Tertullian says again, As for me, I derive the Son from no other source than from the substance of the Father. And I believe He does nothing without the Father's will, and that He received all power from the Father. So how can I possibly be destroying the, mo the monarchy from the faith when I preserve it in the Son just as it was committed to Him by the Father? Likewise with the third degree. For I believe the Spirit is from no other source than from the Father through the Son. Very clear. Let me just give you one more from a uh, Hippolytus here. Hippolytus is writing around 205 A.D. Therefore a man is compelled to acknowledge God the Father Almighty and, Jesus, and Christ Jesus the Son of God, who being God, Jesus who being God, became man, to whom also the Father made all things subject to him, himself accepted, and that Holy Spirit, and that these three are three persons. However, if he desires to know how it is shown that there is still one God, let him know that his power is one. As far as regards the power, therefore God is one. But as far as regards the economy, there's a threefold manifestation. So we have distinctions there being made. And I, I, I'll give you one more because I want to mention this one in regards to 1 John 5-7 here. This is Cyprian. And this is in two, uh, around 225 A.D. And he says, uh, he does this in quotation, the Lord says, I and the Father are one. Now that's a quote from John 10.30. Okay? And then he goes on and says, and again it is written, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. The only place that quote is found in the Scripture is 1 John 5.7. The very end of it. Yeah, it's almost exact quote. It's that the only thing 1 John 5.7 does. It doesn't call Jesus the Son, it calls him the Word. But it says, and these three are one. That's not nowhere else in the scripture besides First John five seven. Right. Well, John one one says, that, you know, we we see very clear the word. But I'm just saying that he's saying these three are one. That's only found in First John five seven. This is two, the third century, early third century. So it's very clear to me that it was in the early manuscripts. Well, he's he's actually quoting the very end of it. The only thing he has in quotes are, and these three are one. That's the only thing that's in quotes. The rest is the rest is paraphrasing it because he's using the son instead of the word. So this is a small sampling. There's, I mean, there's so many verses. I mean, so many quotes I could have typed up from this Merrill Church Fathers. It's a small sampling of what the Church Fathers said on the subject. Okay, so, so to sum it up, here's the Trinity. Okay, the God of the Bible is one God, three persons. Personal pronouns are used of all three and oftentimes in the same verse or passage in the Bible. It's not one God in one person. It's not three gods in three persons. And not one God manifested in three different modes. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not the Father. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are equal in nature and there is no distinction in their nature. All three are fully God, equally God, and eternally God. All three had no beginning. There are differences in roles, authority, or personal attributes slash characteristics. Yet this does not make them unequal in their nature as God or deity. What distinguishes the members of the Trinity from one another is their particular role within salvation and the relationships that each has with the other. 
The authority submission roles seen within a trinity are not a submission of nature, but of a role in relationship. The Father establishes the plan and means of redemption. The Son accomplishes that redemption through His sinless life, death, and resurrection. And the Spirit applies this redemption all to the glory of the Father. The authority of the Father over the Son and of the Father and Son over the Spirit is full of wisdom, goodness, care, and love. The submission of the Son to the Father and of the Spirit to the Father and Son is always joyful obedience, not begrudging duty. This is what we have in the Trinity. 